0: Hello, I'm Tony Collins and this is the Rugby Reloaded Plus podcast. My guest today is Roy Hay, formerly of Deakin University in Geelong in Australia and, I and many others would argue, the foremost historian of association football in Australia. He's just published a new book, Aboriginal People and Australian Football in the 19th Century. They did not come from nowhere, which deals with the role that Aboriginal athletes played in the early days of Australian rules football in the 19th century. It's a groundbreaking book that's important not just for Aussie rules, but for all football codes. The NRL has just held its Indigenous round, while on Friday night the AFL staged its marne Gruck match, both seeking to celebrate the Aboriginal contribution to football. More controversially, next week also sees the release of a new documentary about racism in the AFL, The Final Quarter, so this book could not be more topical. So Roy, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for inviting me, Tony. So if you don't mind, I'll start by asking the $64,000 question. What's the book about?
1: Well, it's something that you and I have wrestled with for the best part of a generation. Where did the codes come from and what part did local people play in their very early development? Now, if you ask that question of Aboriginal people in Australia, they will tell you that the The game of Marngrook, one of the traditional games that they played, had analogues with the way the white man's game developed. And this is something which has been given a lot of credence in Australia thanks to a fellow called Jim Poulter, uh, a medical doctor, but, but whose family went back to this period. Um, And a journalist, Martin Flanagan, who wrote a series of articles and a good book on Tom Wills, a lad who was sent from the Western District of Victoria to rugby school in England um, to become an English gentleman. But being a lazy sod, he spent all his time playing cricket and football at rugby, then came back and after helping the cricket team beat uh, New South Wales, the Victorian cricket team beat New South Wales for the first time, wrote a letter to the paper saying, can't we get a football game going in the winter to keep the cricketers fit? And that is supposed to be the founding document of uh, what we now know as Australian football. And in his youth, he had played with Aboriginal kids. So people began to get this notion that there was a conduit through Tom Wills' respects of the the Indigenous game into what was the European game. The unfortunate thing is there's really no credible evidence of a linkage of this kind. The games that the Europeans played were low-level kicking, scrummaging games, not jumping up in the air to catch the ball, which was the essence, if you like, of Mangrook, a sort of uh, aboriginal keepy-uppy with uh, the ball being kicked straight up in the air. So that was the way this idea of the link between Mangrook and Aussie rules developed. And it's now become one of these popular legends. And you did a very sophisticated demolition job on this many years ago yourself. And I was following your academic footsteps. While like you, my heart was saying, I wish it were true, you know, that this was the case. And there was a fellow, Dennis from Dimbola, who got on to Martin Flanagan's blog and he said, we had an, an, an Aboriginal fellow, Morris Marks, that played with Dimbula in the old days. And the senior people, who were only a generation removed from Tom Wills, would say he ought to be good at the game. It's their game. So where did they get the notion? Because they didn't read the newspapers and they didn't um, have um, the, the, the word from Tom Wills at that time. And I thought Dennis deserved an answer, but I couldn't give it to him. And it's only really since we, as you did in the UK, had large numbers of our uh, national and local newspapers digitized that you can do searches through the sports pages of the newspapers, for example. Now... Australians are besotted by sports, so very early in the 19th century, the papers are carrying material on sports. And lo and behold, within that, you will find Aboriginal people, the few survivors that were left in the missions and stations around the periphery of Victoria, South Australia, Western Australia, saw the white men playing their strange game, and said, we could do that, and managed to force their way into it. Now, there is a huge trove of material in those sports pages. It's the only place where Aborigines get an even semi-positive mention. Otherwise, it's only if they're committing outrages, and sometimes if outrages have been committed on them, that they would get a mention at all, because of the the inherent racism and denigration of Aboriginal people that was going on. But in fact, this trove reveals that, first of all, the few survivors managed to get into the game as individuals, then began to form teams, eventually became good enough to play in league local leagues, and eventually to win them. It didn't end the racism or, or the denigration. Uh, when the Camaragunja mob from up along the New South Wales border won the Western and Moira League five times in a row, they were told, we're going to handicap you. You can't play anybody in your team who's more than 25 years old. So uh, <laughs> it was still not a level playing field. But this evidence is there. And my the essence of my book is to get that out there so that a young generation now of Indigenous people can take up my story and follow it from their perspective and tell this in a way that shows how they were proactive, they were making their own history. It wasn't, they weren't on the receiving end of everything. They'd been enormously resilient in this country over, what, 60, maybe 100,000 years. Why should they give up when the Europeans arrive?
0: I think that's one of the, the things that I enjoyed most about the book, or one of many things that I enjoyed about the book, is the fact that actually it also tells the story of Aboriginal people in Victoria and the southern states of Australia through mm-hmm. the medium of their um, their involvement in football. And I think it's, um, it's very shocking when you read what the, situa- what the state of Aboriginal people were at that point. So I think you make the point that By the 1880s, 1890s, there's less than 500 Aboriginal people left. In Victoria, Mm. the population has been reduced by 99%. I think when we look back, it's very difficult to appreciate just what a weight of oppression Aboriginal people uh, lived under at that time. And so for them to play football took tremendous effort on their part and and, an ability to stand up to all these obstacles that were put in their way. And I wondered whether you could just outline a little bit of the, the situation that Aboriginal people were in in the 19th century, because I think most of the examples you have of teams, they're based on what were known as Aboriginal missions. So could you
1: explain a bit about that, um, the, you know, the, the, what that involved? Well, the, the, the initial thing was that the numbers, as you say, of Aboriginal people declined very dramatically. The first generation had no idea what to do. I mean, from the Aboriginal point of view, they thought they were sharing their land, but actually they were losing it. I mean, that was it. Their country, their livelihood, everything was gone. And many of them suffered, even the the ones who survived, suffered terribly under this oppression. But these were resilient people who had... 60,000 or more years of history behind them, running Australia, keeping it going. And many of them saw the white men and, and what they were doing. And although it wasn't an even relationship, they managed to become members of the local uh, societies in these remote areas to which they really had been consigned, because the Europeans tried a bit of assimilation, felt it didn't work, and therefore decided that they would leave them on the periphery of the the um, the, the colony in an area where they might have a bit of land that they could look after themselves under the guidance of protectors or missionaries or members of the Board for the Protection of Aborigines. This didn't really work. It it was very much from the top down. But as I say, some of those people, both within the stations or close to them, having shown this resilience over such a long period, managed to take on the white men at their own activities, either becoming shearers or agricultural workers or, in some cases, teachers. But the one way that they could get into public notice was playing the Europeans' games. And footy, football, uh, was one of the vehicles they used. You remember, too, that a few of them came to England in 1868 with the first touring cricket team, which played a whole series of matches in England that year. Now, nobody says the Aborigines invented cricket, but there they managed to adapt to that at a time when life, in most other ways, would be totally intolerable.
0: The other thing that the book brings out really well. is the individual stories of players, and you've got a number of um, profiles of uh, outstanding Aboriginal players from that time. The one that really stands out, who is kind of known a little bit today, is uh, Albert Pompey Austin. Can you say a little bit about Pompey Austin?
1: He is, I would reckon, just about one of the most important people in Australia in the 19th century. This man was not only a footballer, he played at the top level a single game for Geelong in 1872, but he was also a pedestrian, as we would call it, a professional athlete, hurdler, flat racer. He was a cricketer. He used some of his winnings from racing to buy a racehorse and won a hurdle race as his own jockey on his own horse. He was a horse thief. I mean, how did you get around Victoria if you hadn't got transport? You would borrow a horse, you'd borrow a saddle. And so he was always falling foul of the law in that way. He was um, an entertainer. He was an artist. He was a savant. Imagine, uh, Tony, uh, the equivalent of Hyde Park Corner in London, known as the Corner in Ballarat. And here he is haranguing a crowd of people on the political situation and the prospects for war. Now, there's no money coming in. It's all a bit disappointing. He sees a bunch of Scots in the audience. What does he do? He breaks into Scottish songs and talking about the beauties of the Scottish countryside and the money pours in from these miserable people, you know. He he was an artist ahead of his time. He led an expedition to the Kimberleys, which is in the northwest of Western Australia. This is from the southeast corner of Australia. So you're talking about a distance of three to four thousand miles. It, it, it's sort of Iberia to the to the Euros, you know. And he gets a mention in a book by um, Mary Jurek called "Kings and Grass Castles" about the European settlers in that part of the world. And she talks about her father or grandfather welcoming the the phenomenal Aboriginal Pompey Austin who was singing music hall songs hot off the London stage. This is a man about whom we've known a little bit, but really he is one of the most significant, well-rounded human beings of the 19th century. He deserves a proper biography. I reflect on this. I was uh, reading Michael, I think it's Michael Roberts' biography of Churchill, where he's got A million and a half words from Churchill plus uh, audio plus a thousand biographies. I've got half of one sentence of reported speech about Pompey Austin. But we've still managed to put together 30,000 words or so on this incredible human being. I mean, it's only possible because of the resources of the Trove system Really? One of the questions that I thought
0: was that came out of the book was, uh, as you know, from association football, and it's also the case in rugby. um, Mm. When working class people started to get the upper hand in these sports, there was a lot of resentment by the, the middle and upper class people who ran the games at that time. As Aboriginal teams became successful, and obviously some of them, as you outlined in the book, were very good indeed. Mm. Were there attempts by um, white Australians to control or restrict their participation in the sport?
1: Absolutely, at all levels. I mean, the local teams often send uh, a letter to the VFL, the Victorian Football League, the controlling body, um, asking for a chance to play against a a Melbourne team uh, where the the main centre of the game is in the 19th century. And the, they're knocked back uniformly. In As individuals, um, a fellow called Dick Rowan gets a game, a friendly game, for the South Melbourne Club, who assess him as really worthwhile and want to bring him back for the next season. But the Board for the Protection of Aborigines says, no way, if we give him permission, they'll all want to go. So the the, the gatekeepers of the missions as well as the gatekeepers of the football do everything in their power to stop Aborigines getting what would be regular games against top-class opposition, which is the only way they could get out of, if you like, bush football into the higher levels of the game. It's very interesting the way that football authorities respond
0: to threats from those they say is outsiders. It's the same That's the world it, over, whether it's Aussie rules, soccer, rugby, the same mechanisms are always put in place. At what point did Aboriginal players appear in the, well, the forum of the AFL, the Victorian Football League? When when did they appear as professional?
1: Not until the latter part of the 20th century. I think it was two, around about 2008 when the Marngrook idea was being floated. Um Up until that time, I think only 18 18 individuals who identified as Aboriginal had played in the VFL-AFL. Apart from Albert Pompey Austin, who we've mentioned, and Dick Rowan, who had that friendly game, uh, a fellow called Joe Johnston played a significant number of games for Fitzroy around the turn of the 20th century. But he's an interesting character because in his lifetime, he never identified as Aboriginal. Now, his descendants, his his sons and grandsons have subsequently identified as Aboriginal. And this allows the AFL today to claim that Joe Johnson was the first to play regularly at the top level.
0: One final question, which is to, to sort of bring it up today it does seem that although the afl has been very proactive in promoting mark grook and its supposed origins as an aboriginal game mm. it's still really wrestling with that legacy from the 19th century that the as the adam goods film demonstrates that goods was was essentially mm. forced out of the game at the end of his career and it does seem that the afl despite what it's doing publicly is still grappling with its 19th century origins and the discrimination against Aboriginal
1: players that it, uh, that existed in the 19th century. Absolutely. Um, and uh, we, we've got plenty of examples from the early 20th century, from people who were playing regularly at the um, good quality games uh, in uh, local teams. And some of the... European members of the teams would say, well, we would protect these people and, um, uh, you know, as long as they were within our group, um, they would be able to shrug off um, the worst of this um, abusive racism. I think when you talk to the indigenous people themselves or see what they said, uh, it's very clear that they did not shrug it off because it, really was hard going for them, the the abuse they had to put up with. And it's not really till Nicky Winmar, playing against Collingwood, subject to fierce abuse from the crowd, pulled up his shirt and showed his black skin and told people how proud he was of it. That, plus the actions of Michael Long in calling out specific abuse on the field, helped to change things for the better. But as you say, we're a long way from Aboriginal people being treated with total respect, despite the fact that nowadays they are actually overrepresented in Australian rules relative to their share of the total population. And among Aborigines, the Noongar from the southwest of Western Australia are even more overrepresented than the general Aboriginal um, population. So there are numerous people now uh, involved in the game as players. What I don't see yet is them being promoted to governing bodies, to be coaches, to be uh, administrators of the game. And I don't see that yet We have come to terms with the peculiar problems which Indigenous people face in being uprooted from tiny local communities and pitched into major urban industrial centres where they're expected to behave in a way that is at variance with many of their beliefs and their history and their consciousness. We have a long way to go yet, even with the goodwill which I think exists on both sides despite such a fearsome history.
0: Absolutely. And that's a lesson which is true for football codes wherever they're played in the world, not just for Aussie rules or Australia. So, I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Rugby Reloaded podcast, but most of all, thanks to you, Roy, for taking time out to be with us. Just to remind you, Roy's book is called Aboriginal People and Aboriginal Football in the 19th Century. They Did Not Come From Nowhere. And it's published by Cambridge Scholars Press. I'd also highly recommend Roy's earlier book, A History of Football in Australia, A Game of Two Halves, which is a model of how to write a history of a football code of any type. As usual, if you want to follow me on Twitter, my name is at Collins Tony. Roy is quite sensibly not on Twitter. And if you want to dig a bit deeper into the history of rugby and the other football codes, take a look at the Rugby Reloaded website at www.rubbyreloaded.com. Until next week, thanks for listening.